People of God, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Mark chapter 10, beginning at verse 17, as we continue to work our way through this marvelous gospel of Mark. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we know, as Jonathan Edwards often put it, that heaven is a world of love. And we also know that we only enter into that world of love because of infinite, eternal, electing love. Because we serve a God and Father who sent His only Son who came into this world to pay the penalty and price of our hell-deserving sin. He is worthy. He is filled with grandeur. Before Him we bow in awe. And we ask that if there is anyone here today who does not know the Lord Jesus, that this person or persons will see himself, themselves, in view of the perfections of our God and fly to Jesus Christ, just as we have sung. We ask that the Holy Spirit, who has given this word by divine inspiration, will now illumine its page, and we pray that Christ alone will be seen and that Christ alone will be exalted. And we humbly ask these things in the name of the one who is worthy, the only mediator between God and man. In reverence and awe, we ask that he will receive all the praise. Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please take your copy of God's Word. Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, beginning with verse 17. This is the Word of God. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? 
Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. People of God, a wealthy man ran to Jesus and undoubtedly breathlessly asked this most important question. What good thing must I do in order to inherit the kingdom of God? Now, Jesus had just taught that to enter the kingdom, one must become as a little child, that is, having nothing to offer, helpless, small, without claim, without merit. This man undoubtedly had heard this. But this wealthy man, Matthew tells us that he was a young man, Luke tells us that he was a ruler, wanted to offer something. He wanted to cling on to something in the place of Jesus. He thought that he must do something in order that he might inherit eternal life. And Jesus could have stopped him, and he, he could have said to him, no, no, you don't understand. Uh, you don't do anything to enter into the kingdom of God. I do it all. You simply trust me and rely upon me. And that is absolutely true. And it's something the man must be brought to see. But Jesus sees his heart. Jesus knew his heart. And his surprising approach to the man was intended to show the man his need. For this man does not see his need of Christ, does not see his need of divine grace alone for the inheritance of eternal life. So as we come to this text, we see, first of all, Jesus' rebuke. We find it here in verses 17 and 18. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Has that puzzled you? Does Jesus' rebuke surprise you? Jesus is not denying his goodness. This is the impeccable Christ. Jesus is not denying his deity. This is God incarnate ministering to this wealthy young man. Jesus certainly is not denying any of these truths. Here is God incarnate asking this question. Now why? Jesus is saying, do you really know who God is? When you speak of goodness, do you understand what goodness really is? In answering your question about eternal life, you need to know something about God's attributes and his character. And so Jesus directs the man to God's character, and he does so in this surprising way. 
When you understand the goodness of God, you will not want to know what good thing you may do in order to inherit the kingdom of God. But your shallow view of the law will be exposed and you will go to that good God for grace. That's why Jesus asks the question. He wants the man to think. He wants the man to understand deeply what his need really is, just as he wants us to understand as well. And then moving on, secondly, we find Jesus' heart-piercing instruction. In verse 19, Jesus points him to the law of God. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And in verse 20, we have the man's response. It's almost as if he's relieved. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. Oh, I'm a moral man. And this is exactly what I thought the answer would be. This is what I've thought all along. If I just keep the commandments of God, I will inherit eternal life. But in pointing the man to the law, Jesus was teaching him not to be at peace with his heart, but to be disconcerted within his heart because he is showing the man that he cannot be saved in that way that he has thought all of his life that he could be saved by his own works and by his own efforts, by law-keeping. And therefore, in verse 21, he says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Jesus is holding up the mirror of the perfections of God, the character of God, the law of God, and he is, he is showing the man himself in view of those perfections. All along, he has thought that he was keeping the, the commandments of God, and he has not been keeping those commandments. He is a lawbreaker, and therefore he needs the Redeemer, Jesus Christ, and he needs the grace of God in order to inherit eternal life. Jesus is saying, in view of your covetous heart, because that's the real issue with you, you are a covetous man. In view of your covetous heart, see yourself. Look at yourself. See who you really are. See what you really are like. You say that was harsh. Well, notice he loved the man. Harsh, harsh to be kind. If a man does not see his sin, he will not see his need of the Savior. What were Jesus' motives? He wants to show the man the spirituality of the law of God, that the law is holy and just and good, and that we are not. He wants to show the unattainable and inflexible character of the law. As we read in James 2.10, for Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. That if one link in the chain is broken, the entire chain of the law is broken. He wants to show the man the helplessness to which an understanding of the law of God will lead. He wants to show the necessity of an inward change, what Jesus elsewhere calls the new birth. You must be born again a helpless attitude that relies on Christ alone for salvation, that eschews all, all effort of our own as if it could earn salvation with God. No, no, a new heart is what he needs. 
and to show the necessity of a completely perfect righteousness to stand in God's presence that only Christ can provide. His sin clothes being removed, Christ can clothe this young man in the perfection of his own judicial righteousness. And so through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's what Paul the Apostle tells us. Pressing on his conscience the covenant of works, he intends that the Spirit of God will use this in order to drive him to the covenant of grace. And so in short, Jesus holds up the perfection of God's law so that this man can see his need of grace. Now, we don't so much mind that, that, that we sin. We, we are willing to confess that we sin and have a little bit of humility. Most people are willing to say, I sin. But the natural man does not want to admit that he's a sinner. There's something so radically wrong with me that I can do nothing about it that I really am fundamentally bad, fallen in Adam, and through my own transgressions, fundamentally bad in my heart. And Jesus then is underscoring this to this moral man, the depth of his depravity and helplessness. Now we Christians should be most compassionate about this. Jonathan Edwards wrote, about the biblical doctrine of total depravity. This doctrine teaches us to think no worse of others than of ourselves. It teaches us that we are all, as we are by nature, companions in a miserable, helpless condition, which under a revelation of the divine mercy tends to promote mutual compassion. And that is true. All of us are fallen in Adam. Everyone who has descended from him by ordinary generation is fallen in Adam. We are all sinners. In sin did my mother conceive me. There is what the theologians rightly call original sin. But note verse 21. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him, and it shows because he is willing to tell him the hard thing, the thing he really needs to know. He's willing to uncover his heart to show that his entire approach to life thus far has been wrong-hearted and wrong-headed. Now you may say, I don't see myself that way. I'm not perfect, but I'm not fundamentally defined by sin. By nature, we are so defined by sin that one of the dominant sins is not seeing the truth about ourselves. And only the Holy Spirit can show a sinner the depth of his need. Jesus is knocking out the props from underneath this young man who thought he could be saved by his works. From all his attempts at self-justification, he is condemning self-righteousness, the view that we can know God by our own self-efforts. This man was ignorant of his own heart because he was ignorant of God's law and anyone who still believes who is sitting here today that you contribute to your justification or salvation, that there is some merit in what you do has not yet seen that fundamentally you are wrong with God and need to be made right with God. This man was ignorant of his own heart because he was ignorant of the law of God. 
you can do the works of an Albert Schweitzer or the works of a Mother Teresa, but it will not make you right with God. The conversion that this man needed and that every lost sinner needs is a conversion from one righteousness to another, from self-righteousness to the imputed righteousness of Christ. You know, one tragedy attending self-righteousness is that the self-righteous person thinks that he needs no gospel. And the law shows us our real need of a perfect righteousness in God's court of law. The person who thinks he can attain these things is living a lie. Do you hear? I love you, and I want to speak the truth on the authority of God's word. If you believe that you contribute to your justification in God's court of law, you are living a lifelong lie. The gospel comes against the backdrop of law to break our commitment to this lie. And that's what Jesus is doing with this young man. As we read the law, or as we read the demands for discipleship, who can rest on his own achievement? No matter what I think my progress might have been, in view of God's holiness, I have made no progress at all. I cannot rest there. I need another righteousness. I cannot stand before God in my own filthy rags. So we can know what the law demands by looking with this man at the Ten Commandments. And you can go through the commandments of God, and it's a good exercise, and you can, you can see the spirituality of the law, the perfection of the law, its utter and complete demand for, for personal and perfect and perpetual obedience. And you say, there's no law here that I have kept that would earn me in any way merit with God. But there's another way that you also can know yourself and be driven out of self unto Christ, out of sin unto grace, and that is by looking at the cross. Because when you look at the cross of Jesus Christ, there you see the perfection of the law of God, and you see it in a way that is incomparable. There you see the one who bled and suffered and died as our penal substitute on that cross, meeting all of the demands of the law. There you see the love of God to send his own son to redeem and save you from your sin. There you see the perfection of the law. There you see how those demands are met. You go to the cross, and that is a powerful means of convicting my heart. And there we see the holiness of the lawgiver. There we see the wages of sin. But there we also see that I, trusting Christ, am spared because he was not spared. That Christ paid my awful offense against God. That he loved me and gave himself for me. That I am saved from the penalty of the broken law of God. Do you see? All of us are under condemnation and wrath. Jesus says this in John 3.18. He tells us that we are under condemnation if we have not believed on the name of the only Son of God. Well, we go on in this text, and we see, thirdly, the wealthy man's response. Did he at this point understand the things that we are now speaking of? Well, here's the wealthy man's response. 
When Jesus told the man, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, this was not salvation by works. Rather, this was divine surgery. If the man trusted in Christ, he would have shown his obedience to this command, but it would have merited him nothing. This man has a God that he prizes more than God. If he had sold all that he had and given to the poor, that would not have redeemed his soul. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill the law's demands. And so, had he done so, it might have shown that he has a new heart that responds to the grace of God, but it would not have saved him from his sins. So Jesus is exposing the heart. He is dissecting his heart. And at this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Why did his face cloud? Why was he sad? Because he did not want a heart change. Because he did not want to give up what he loved more than God that he relied on to save him. Because this young man's fundamental problem is the problem that we all have. The fundamental problem for this young man is idolatry. In other words, even though Jesus' words force him to see that he is covetous, that very fact points out that he has not kept even the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's think about that for a moment. The breaking of any one of the commandments of God involves also the breaking of the first two. And we set up a false god and a false savior. And idolatry is so subtle, isn't it? Dave Pallison, a number of years ago, in one of his articles, helpfully pointed out that idols counterfeit aspects of God's character. Idols can be judge, savior, source of blessing, sin bearer, object of trust. Each idol gives promises and gives warnings. But service to each idol, says Pallison, results in a hangover of misery and accusation because idols lie and murder. And so when we trust in those things, we are trusting in the very things that are killing us that murder our souls. So material wealth is not the only idol. Jesus has not commanded all of his followers to, followers to sell all their possessions, though it's rightly been said that that fact gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. But it remains true that material wealth is not the only possible idol and that there are as many applications of Jesus' words about the law of God as there are those of us who are here today. So here are the verbs, go, sell, give, come, follow. And in order to do these things, the man must have a new heart. He must be born again. He must be made new. And you must be as well. And so must I. His life and ours must revolve around Christ. Now, pause for a moment. 
and feel this in your heart, just think upon it for a moment. What are the idols that have gripped my heart, that keep me from Christ, or as a Christian, that keep me from, from growth and maturity? Think about this. This man loved the world more than he loved Christ, more than he cared about his own soul. What about you? So, if you have a sore on your body, you can stand to be touched anywhere but there. Well, this man has a sore, and Jesus touches him right on the sore. Jesus was not giving an aspirin when the man needed a heart transplant. This man needed what all sinners need to be driven out of himself to Christ, and that is why Jesus uses the law, the second use of the law, we call it. This is why he uses the law as he does. Now, in evangelism, we should never hide from our lost friends their condemnation under the law of God. We should word it with love and with great grace and with great care, but we don't hide these things. We want them to see their helplessness. They must see themselves hopeless in themselves. And indeed, preachers should preach that sinners can't come and yet are required to come, driven out of their self-dependence by dependence upon the grace of God. The law does not teach a lost man what he can do. The law teaches a lost man what he ought to do and yet is incapable of doing. And note, Jesus loves him. A number of years ago, I was speaking with a shopkeeper in downtown Lakeland. And I was explaining to her the gospel. I was very thorough. She was listening. I told her that Christ came into the world to die for sinners, that he was God in the flesh, that he that he went to the cross to pay the penalty of sinners like us, that his blood was sufficient to save the vilest sinner. I spoke of his resurrection from the dead. The whole gospel was there. She listened. And then, after I took a pause, she looked at me and said, why ever would I want that? That woman had not yet seen her need of that gospel. Later, I found out that she was leaving her husband. There were various idols at work in her heart, but she did not see her need of the Redeemer. Now, this leads us then to the fourth thing we see in this text, wealth and salvation. And let's read verses 23 through 25. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So wealth is one of those things that can be among the greatest snares that can keep someone from coming to the Lord Jesus Christ and can lead to false security, trusting in things, material things that will that will fade away and pass away. And it presents peculiar temptations and leads a person to forget what is infinitely more important. So Jesus uses this little parable about 
the camel and the needle. And perhaps you've heard that the, that the, um, the needle was the entranceway into a city gate and the camel had all sorts of things on his back and so he had to get down on his knees to get through. And so that's what Jesus meant. It doesn't, no, it's not what he meant. You know what he meant? He meant a needle and a camel. That's what he meant. This other idea is a modern idea that's come along some, somewhere along the line, but it has, it has no support for it whatsoever. No, here is the needle, here's the camel. How am I going to get that camel through the eye of that needle? It's impossible. And that's the point. He is showing the impossibility of works righteousness gaining us entrance into eternal life. Wealth must have its rightful place in God's kingdom or it will spell peril. So maybe you say, this is not my problem. I don't love money. Well, just remember that the attitudes of our heart show by their actions. And remember this too. All who are tempted to put money first. I have officiated many a funeral through my ministry. And the wealth of the dead man or woman has not mattered yet. Both entered eternity without a stitch of righteousness due to their wealth. So Jesus' teaching was revolutionary and startled the disciples because they had been taught to think that when a person had great wealth, it was because they were much favored by God. And this leads them to cry out, who then can be saved? And Jesus points to a new hope. God can do what man cannot, as we read in Jeremiah this morning. He points to a new righteousness, meeting the law's demands, Christ himself. He points to a new life of faith and repentance, to new values, living out of the fullness of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And in verses 28 through 30, where he says, Peter began to say, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life he is showing that there's a new promise. This is not works righteousness. This is the reward of grace upon the true children of God. And many in this life that think they are first are going to be last, and they don't have the eyes to see it. And many, a true Christian in this world who seems to be last is going to be first when the consummated kingdom arrives. So he gives a new hope here, not of this world, an inheritance that none can defile, an inheritance that is by grace, earned by us. No. Earned by Christ and Christ alone. With men, it is impossible, but God is the God of sovereign, free grace. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And indeed, many who are first in this world's goods will be last and even excluded from the kingdom of God. 
those who are saved by grace, though last in this world, are first. They enter the kingdom by grace. Look at verse 21. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. That does not mean that there is just something small at issue, that a, a minor adjustment will make everything just fine. No, indeed, it means that there is something in the way of our knowing Christ, and it must be removed. Something that keeps us from seeing that we cannot save ourselves, that salvation is by grace. Just like the rich man in Luke chapter 12 was so concerned with just hoarding what he had, but the scriptures say, tonight thy soul shall be required of thee. God can do what man cannot. And everyone here saved by the grace of God is because God has done what man could not, what you could not, what I could not, what no one else could have done for us but God himself. About the year 1765, George Whitfield, the great Calvinist evangelist who crossed the Atlantic, I think seven times coming to minister in this country, was in the township of Southold. I think Southold is in New York. And he lodged that night with uh, Thomas Fanning and his family. And Thomas Fanning and his family, they all were very serious, but they were all lost. And Whitfield had spoken the gospel to them, he had spent the night, but he wanted to leave some last testimony. And so getting up very early before he left to go to his next appointment, he took a diamond ring and he went to the window in his bedroom where he had slept that night and he wrote with that diamond on the pane, one thing needful. Now, even though those are the words of Luke 10:42, due to the affluence of Whitfield's host, I think that he had this text in mind. There's one thing needful. There's one thing lacking. And yes, there is one thing lacking or one thing needful for someone here this morning. And that one thing is absolutely indispensable. Whatever you have and are holding on to, whatever you have without Christ, will damn you but will not save you. The one thing needful is a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And when Thomas Fanning climbed the stairs, went into the bedroom, looked at the window, and saw the sun shining through, and the words, one thing needful, the Holy Spirit used that witness, and immediately Thomas Fanning was converted to God. And that's what I'm praying for someone here today, that one thing needful, that you will hear that, that it will be written upon the pain of your heart, that you will see that one thing is really a person. It's the lovely, wonderful Savior 
Jesus Christ. Look away from self. Look to Christ by faith. Amen. Amen.